Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We got an email from listener Jessica a couple of weeks ago. And this email said in part, quote, My email tonight is to ask something on the lighter side. I was enjoying my gin and tonic after dinner and had the thought of, I wonder if Holly and Tracy ever did an episode about gin. So I went to the website to try and search the archives. Lo and behold, that doesn't seem to be possible in the current iHeartRadio format. So is there an episode about gin in the archives? How would I go about bringing it up? So to answer half the question... Uh, the best way to find old episodes of our podcast at this point is to Google the topic along with the words stuff you missed in history class as part of your search. And I know that sounds weird, but that's also how I was doing it with the old website. Other search engines like DuckDuckGo and Bing did not used to work as well for this, but they have caught up since the last time I had checked. Nowadays, they're more consistently bringing up the episode if there is one as the top search result. Although sometimes it's on another platform rather than our website, which is fine. (laughs) All goes into the same bucket of listening. This would not have worked when Jessica sent this email, though, because at that point, there was no episode on Jin, but there's about to be one. It's this one. (laughs) We're recording right now. Might not be quite as light as uh, as Jessica was thinking when requesting the topic, though. (laughs) There's always surprise horror in history. Uh, So gin as we know it today is a distilled alcoholic beverage made from grain and flavored with botanicals, particularly juniper berries. Uh, Juniper is an evergreen shrub in the cypress family, and there are at least 60 different juniper species growing all over the Northern Hemisphere. Those berries are not what you would think of, like a berry you could pick from a tree and nosh on. They are actually small, fleshy cones rather than any kind of juicy-looking, delicious berry. Yeah, we call them berries, but they're really tiny little cones. Uh, Every part of the juniper plant has been used for medicinal and religious and culinary purposes for pretty much all of recorded history. Anywhere it grows or anywhere it's it's been in reasonable trading distance starts with ancient Egyptian texts that describe the use of juniper in mummification recipes. Uh, John Burgundy's Plague Treatise, which was written in 1365, recommends burning juniper branches to drive bad air and disease from the home. Juniper was also one of the fragrant substances that was stuffed up into the beaks of plague doctor masks in the 17th century. The first alcohols made with juniper were also meant for medicinal or alchemical use. This is something it shares with the history of vodka. Same thing. Yep. Most of the most of the most spirit. Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the earliest mentions of this date back to the middle of the 11th century in the writing of Benedictine monks living in Salerno, Italy, as well as the nearby medical school known as Scola Medicina Solernitana. Medical texts from this period describe a tonic that's made from distilled wine infused with juniper berries. Eventually, people started combining juniper with alcohol to make a beverage rather than a medicine or an alchemical potion. In Finland, sakti, which is uh, like an ale-like beer that's flavored with juniper instead of hops, 
has been around since about the 12th century. In Central Europe, Borovichka, also called juniper brandy, has been made since at least the 15th century. Today, it's popular in Slovakia and the Czech Republic. And then there are similar beverages in other Slavic countries as well that all have this juniper flavor to them. But the beverage that comes up most often as a predecessor to gin is the Dutch spirit Yenever. That's a term that comes from the Dutch word for juniper. Uh, As is the case with most food origin stories, the specifics on who first created Yenever are not totally clear. The credit often goes to chemist and physician Franciscus Silvus, also known as Francois de la Boye or Silvius de la Boye. However, though, Franciscus Silvius was born in 1614. And some of the accounts of the creation of Yenever put this development in 1572, so well before his birth. Time traveler. Yes. It is possible that people have conflated two different people who had similar names, both of whom worked at the University of Leiden. One was an apothecary named Silvius de Bouve in the 16th century, and the other was Franciscus Silvius, who was a professor of medicine in the 17th century. It is just as likely, though, that no one person can get the sole credit for creating this drink. Regardless, Dutch distiller Lucas Bowles was established in 1575 and describes itself as the world's oldest distilled spirits brand. By 1602, Bowles was supplying spirits to the Dutch East India Company, known as the VOC, as it's abbreviated, from Dutch. By the middle of the 17th century, VOC sailors were getting Yenever in their rations, and soon the VOC was carrying Yenever anywhere the Dutch were trading, including to what is now Indonesia. When the Dutch established the settlement of New Amsterdam on the island of Manhattan, they introduced Yenever to North America as well. Today, Yenever is sometimes known as Hollands, and some people call it Dutch gin, but it's really its own distinct beverage. Gin has evolved over time, which we will get to, but it generally starts with a neutral spirit made from a grain, which is flavored with botanicals, including juniper. But Yenever typically goes through a two- or even three-step process. It starts with a fermented grain mash, which is distilled into a malt wine, and then that is distilled again with botanicals, including juniper berries, And the result of this process is a clear, malted, grain-based spirit. It's typically consumed by itself from a tulip-shaped glass. Uh, I, in my experience, most people mix gin with other stuff most of the time. That's not so much the case with Yenever. There's also an official Appellation d'Origine Controle, or an AOC for Yenever, legally, True Yenever can only be made in Holland, Belgium, and very specific regions of France and Germany. While Yenever and gin are distinctly different drinks, there was probably a progression from Dutch Yenever to British gin. Yenever was introduced into Britain sometime during the 17th century, and there are several possibilities for exactly when. One is that during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, which started in 1652, it made its way. Another is after the restoration of Charles II. He spent some time in The Hague before returning to the British throne in 1660. 
Probably the most common explanation is that Yenever's popularity in Britain really started with the Glorious Revolution, when King James II was deposed and succeeded by William III, also known as William of Orange, Stadtholder of the Netherlands. William ruled with his wife Mary, who was James's daughter. Regardless of exactly when or how it was introduced after Yenever made its way into Britain, English speakers morphed its name into Geneva or Jennifer and then shortened that to Gin. Yeah, because Yenever is spelled G-E-N-E-V-E-R. So, so if you're reading it on a page as an English speaker, it looks like it's uh, Jennifer. So since common juniper is native to the UK, there were already culinary and medicinal uses for it well before Yenever was introduced. And in written accounts from the 17th century, it's not always totally clear exactly what people are describing. Whether it's Dutch Yenever or a local British beverage or a medicinal preparation made from alcohol and juniper. For example, past podcast subject Samuel Pepys described feeling unwell in his diary entry from October 4th, 1663. Pepys was chronically ill. He had recurring bladder stones. And over the next few days, his diary entries describe him as being in pain and constipated and experiencing painful urination. Then, on October 10th, he writes about making himself go into his office where he met with Sir John Menz, Comptroller of the Navy, and Sir William Batten, Surveyor of the Navy. He said of their conversation, quote, Sir J. Menz and Sir W. Batten did advise me to take some juniper water, and Sir W. Batten sent to his lady for some for me, strong water made of juniper. While Pepys does describe starting to feel better over the next couple of days, he had also tried some other treatments. So it's not 100% clear whether this strong water made of juniper, whether it was Yenever or gin or something else, was effective or not. So while there's some uncertainty and some overlap here, gin definitely became a lot more popular in Britain during William and Mary's reign. And it was not just because William was Dutch and would have brought a Dutch influence to things. It's also because of things like wars and laws. And we'll get to that after a sponsor break. After William and Mary came to the throne of the United Kingdom, they declared war on France. This was part of the Nine Years' War, which started in 1688. And then Parliament passed the Trade with France Act of 1688. That banned all trade with France, and that put an end to all of the imports of French wine and French brandy. In 1690, Parliament passed the Act for Encouraging the Distilling of Brandy and Spirits from Corn. This set a duty of eight shillings per gallon on, quote, strong waters, brandy, aquavita, and spirits from the Channel Islands, and it decreed that any liquors found to have been grown or manufactured in French territory would be destroyed. At this point, the British beer industry was regulated and taxed, but you didn't need a license to sell gin. So this law meant that locally made spirits distilled from grain were the cheapest alcoholic beverage available. It also helped create more demand for British-grown grain, since pretty much every grain was lumped into the category of corn. 
So this law helped boost the price of grain to the benefit of British landowners by encouraging people to use it to make alcohol. The UK also already had its own distilling guild that was the Worshipful Company of Distillers, established in 1638. The guild initially had a monopoly on distilling in the area around London, and the number of distilleries in the kingdom really grew in the last half of the 17th century thanks to its influence. So by the time this law was passed, encouraging the distilling of brandy and spirits from corn... The UK was pretty ready for it. These spirits were really all over the place in terms of their quality and ingredients and what type of alcohol we would actually describe them as today. But by the early 18th century, one in particular was becoming prominent, and that was gin. The first written use of the word gin in the G-I-N form in English was in 1713 from the Infernal Congress or News from Below, being a letter from Dick Estcourt, the late famous comedian, to the spectator. It read, quote, Being fatigued with Touchen's impudence, I took a turn in the Prado and drunk a dram of royal gin with the Duchess of Portsmouth, who has a little brandy shop here. Uh, gin was also really quickly becoming notorious. In 1714, Bernard Mandeville published The Fable of the Bees or Private Vice's Public Benefits. In this book, he made the argument that various vices, many of which were widely criticized and even condemned, actually contributed to some sort of public good. So here's how Mandeville described gin. Quote, Nothing is more destructive, either in regard to the health or the vigilance and industry of the poor, than the infamous liquor, the name of which, derived from juniper and Dutch, is now, by frequent use, and the laconic spirit of the nation from a word of meddling length shrunk into a monosyllable, intoxicating gin, that charms the unactive, the desperate, and the crazy of either sex, and makes the starving lot behold his rags and nakedness with stupid indolence, or banter both in senseless laughter and more insipid jest. It is a fiery lake that sets the brain in flame, burns up the entrails, and scorches every part within. And, at the same time, a leaf of oblivion in which the wretch immersed drowns in most pinching cares, and with his reason, all anxious reflections on brats that cry for food, hard winter's frosts, and horrid empty home. Uh, I just want to shout out to Holly, because um, this was written in the 1700s, and, and it was full of long S's that look like F's, and I missed one of the long S's when I was... <laughs> Getting it into here, Holly corrected it on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have to go. It does not say the fame time. It should, in fact, say the same time. Uh, I love reading things with long S's in them, but sometimes they can be challenging. Uh, so Mandeville went on to blame Jen for making men quarrelsome and violent and even causing murders, for breaking down people's constitutions and for causing consumption and sudden death. But he says these are rare compared to, quote, loss of appetite, fevers, black and yellow jaundice, convulsions, stone and gravel, dropsies, and leucophlegmases. 
He also goes on at very great length about all the squalid conditions and areas that are home to establishments that sell spirits and to all the social and economic ills that those establishments cause. But... Mandeville then goes on to say, quote, those who can enlarge their view and will give themselves the leisure of gazing on the prospect of concatenated events may, in a hundred places, see good spring up and pullulate from evil as naturally as chickens do from eggs. The money that arises from the duties upon malt is a considerable part of the national revenue, and should no spirits be distilled from it, the public treasure would prodigiously suffer on that head. But if we would set in a true light the many advantages and large catalog of solid blessings that accrue from and are owing to the evil I treat off, we are to consider the rents that are received, the ground that is tilled, the tools that are made, the cattle that are employed, and above all, the multitude of poor that are maintained by the variety of labor required in husbandry, in malting, in carriage and distillation, before we can have that product of malt, which we call low wines, and is but the beginning from which the various spirits are afterwards to be made. In other words, sure, poor people were getting drunk and sometimes dying because of gin, but look at how much it was helping the economy. Needless to say, this book and the argument that Mandeville was making in it were highly controversial. Mandeville's description of gin as destructive was not controversial among the British elite, though. In the early 18th century, it was increasingly taken for granted that gin was uniquely dangerous and was leading to all kinds of problems. By about 1720, this had blossomed into a full-on moral panic described as the gin craze, or sometimes you'll see it as the gin epidemic, particularly in big cities like London, Portsmouth, and Bristol. For about three decades, there was a huge focus on gin consumption and the damage it was purportedly doing and how they might stop it. Then, to be clear, gin did become a lot more popular in these years, and there was some real damage involved. Alcohol consumption carried the same health risks in the 18th century that it does today. Overconsumption and abuse still impacted people's lives and livelihoods. It also wasn't uncommon for liquor to be adulterated with other substances, including things like sulfurous acid and turpentine. And there weren't really any age restrictions on drinking, so people of any age drank really at any time of the day, including parents using gin and other liquors to try to soothe their babies. Excessive drinking, and especially drinking too much gin in particular, also became associated with violence and crime. Records from London's Central Criminal Court, a.k.a. the Old Bailey, include repeated references to gin. For example, a William Burroughs who was indicted for assault in 1731 was described as having fallen, quote, into that dreadful society of gin drinkers, whores, thieves, housebreakers, street robbers, pickpockets, and the whole train of the most notable blackguards in and about London. James Baker, who was convicted of robberies in 1733, was described as, quote, one of them who frequented gin shops. Perhaps most horrifyingly, in 1734, Judith DeFore was convicted of murder after two witnesses testified that she had stripped her daughter Mary naked and left her in a field and sold the baby's clothes to buy gin. 
At the same time, though, most of the focus here, most of the concern, was targeted at poor and working-class people and what they were doing with their time and money. In 1727, Daniel Defoe wrote about the after-effects of the prohibition of trade with France and this increase in English distilling. He said, quote, We find since these prohibitions very great quantities of brandy run by the arts of clandestine traders. But even that quantity is now much abated, except in the north parts and the west parts, since the distillers have found out a way to hit the palate of the poor by their new-fashioned compound waters called Geneva, so that the common people seem not to value the French brandy as usual and even not to desire it. Efforts to curtail drinking, and especially gin drinking, were really rooted in upper-class ideas of appropriate behavior and social standards, and on, quote, cleaning up the moral lives of the poor, rather than addressing any of the social or economic factors that might contribute to excessive drinking. Soon, gin was perceived as the cause of poverty and immorality, and it became symbolic of pretty much every vice and social ill. To combat all of this, Parliament passed a series of gin acts starting in 1729, and these used a range of strategies, including taxes and fines and licensing fees and other regulations, to try to discourage gin sales and consumption. For example, in 1733, it became illegal to sell spirits, quote, about the streets in any wheelbarrow or upon the water in any ship, boat, or vessel. Several versions of the Gin Act encouraged people to inform on others for illegally selling spirits. This was especially true after the passage of the 1736 Act, which did more to stoke illicit gin sales than to discourage people from doing it. Informers were paid half of the 10-pound fine that was collected for violating the Act. At some point, this was lucrative enough that people basically became professional informers, often working in groups of two or three so they could back up each other's accounts when they reported someone's illicit business. Professional informers had to be strategic, though. People who couldn't afford to pay the fine were sentenced to two months of hard labor instead, and that meant that the informers would get nothing. Most informers also avoided reporting people from their own neighborhoods since they faced retaliation and sometimes even physical violence for getting local drinking establishments shut down. Their reputations in their own communities also weren't likely to recover if they reported somebody who knew and trusted them. But there was still a lot of retaliation. A law passed in 1738 set a penalty of seven years' transportation to the North American colonies for attacking an informer. By that point, there had been at least 12,000 prosecutions for selling gin without a license. And these laws disproportionately affected women. Newly established gin houses were often more welcoming to women than pubs that sold beer were, especially when it came to single working-class women. So even though women weren't necessarily drinking more gin than men were, they were more visible than they had been. This was kind of new. So soon the drink was being more associated with women. Gin became known by nicknames like Ladies Delight, Mother Geneva, and Mother Gin. But at the same time, while only about a third of Britain's unlicensed gin sellers were women, at least half the people who faced charges for violating the Gin Acts were women. 
Women also made up as much as three-fourths of the people who were imprisoned because they could not afford to pay the fine. The Gin Acts were deeply unpopular among poor and working-class people, leading to riots in 1737. Trying to enforce the law was also expensive, and in the 1740s, the kingdom needed to put more money toward the War of the Austrian Succession. This was also happening in parallel with the Jacobite uprisings that we have covered on the show before, and there were fears that the Jacobites were stirring up discontent among working-class people, using all of this furor over gin as a cover. On top of all these factors and shifts in the government's priorities, two of the biggest proponents of the Gin Act died in the late 1730s. One was Sir Joseph Jekyll, Master of the Rolls, and the other was Edward Parker, who had run a professional informing ring that had accused at least 1,500 people of illegal activity. So after all this, the wars and the Jacobites and the people dying... In 1743, Parliament repealed the act that had been passed in 1736 and replaced it with one that was more focused on regulating the industry than on trying to curtail it. So licenses became more affordable and the unlicensed gin trade started to wane. The war may have contributed to a decline in the illicit liquor trade as well. Some people who had been supporting themselves that way instead found work related to the war. A new style of beer was also introduced around this time. That would be porter, which started to become more popular and more affordable to working-class people. The Gin Act of 1751, built on the one that had been passed in 1743, it increased the duty on gin and set a licensing fee of two pounds a year and mandated that only respectable people were eligible for a license to sell spirits, Gin's popularity continued to wane in the UK after this, dropping from an estimated 8.5 million gallons consumed in 1751 to 5.9 million just a year later. When you think of millions of gallons, it sounds like so much, but that's That's a huge (laughs) drop-off. It's, it's, uh, you know, spread out among a lot of people. Also, drinking a lot. (laughs) Like, a lot of people drinking a lot, for sure. Listen. Uh, There had been a huge number of pamphlets, sermons, works of art, and the like during the gin craze. And ironically, the one that's probably the most well-known came out at the very end of this. That was Gin Lane by past podcast subject William Hogarth. And this was an engraving showing all of the evils of gin. Among other things, an extremely emaciated man with a cup and bottle in his hands, an inebriated woman whose child is falling over the railing of the stairs that she's sitting on, and a crowd of people having a melee in the background. It has the caption, Gin, cursed fiend with fury fraught, makes human race a prey. It enters by a deadly draught and steals our life away. Virtue and truth, driven to despair, its rage compels to fly, but cherishes with hellish care theft, murder, perjury, damned cup that on the vitals praise that liquid fire contains, which madness to the heart conveys and rolls it through the veins. Hogarth put out his engraving Beer Street as a companion to this one, This is a far more pleasant scene of people mostly just going about their lives and business. Its caption reads, quote, Beer, happy produce of our isle, can sinewy strength impart, 
and wearied with fatigue and toil can cheer each manly heart. Labor and art upheld by thee successfully advance. We quaff thy balmy juice with glee and water leave to France. Genius of health, thy grateful taste rivals the cup of Jove when warms each English generous breast with liberty and love. Oh, William Hogarth. Beer good, gin bad, in the words of William Hogarth. I also read some speculation that the reason that he put this out, like, really at the end of all this, when gin's popularity was dropping really quickly, uh, was that thanks to the ends of earlier wars, there were suddenly a lot of unemployed uh, sailors and others about, and that that made uh, people worried once again about the specter of gin. Oh, William Hogarth. Um... Obviously, this was not the end of Jin. So we are going to talk about what happened in Jin's history a little bit more after we pause for a sponsor break. In 18th century Britain, the drink that people were consuming and describing as gin was really all over the place in terms of what grain it was made of and how it was flavored, what it tasted like, whether it was adulterated with anything dangerous. Most of it was made in batches in pot stills, so there could even be a huge variation in quality from batch to batch, even when those batches were all made by the same distiller. In general, though, a lot of the flavorings that were added into it were there to try to improve the taste of some generally poor quality alcohol. One of those flavorings was sugar. So the final beverage was sweeter than gin typically is today, most of the time. And this sweeter, rougher gin became known as Old Tom. And there are several stories about where that name came from. One is that when the gin acts were in effect, Captain Dudley Bradstreet rented a house for the purpose of illicitly selling gin. He put a picture of an old tomcat on the outside, and customers would put their money in a drawer built into the wall and whisper a code word. And then their gin would be dispensed through a lead pipe that ran out through the wall from the inside of the house to the outside, and the customer would catch it in a cup. Well, I love this story it may be apocryphal and this <laughs> old Tom may just be a weird name that that cropped up. There are some places that still make old Tom gin as like a craft gin experience. Uh, even though gin consumption dropped off pretty quickly after 1751, the beverage did not go away entirely. Later on in the 1820s, a grain surplus combined with a reduction in the duties that were levied on spirits and gin started to surge in popularity again. A new kind of drinking establishment also evolved around this time. That was the Gin Palace, which tended to be a brightly lit and heavily decorated space where people came to drink. Uh, In the mid-1820s, thanks to all this, gin consumption in Britain roughly doubled. This stoked a lot of the same concerns that had been part of the gin craze that happened about 100 years earlier. And in 1830, The Lancet published an article describing what they called gin liver. That's what we would know as cirrhosis today. But efforts to reduce gin consumption in the early 19th century were focused less on making gin more expensive and more regulated and more on making beer cheaper. This didn't have quite the intended effect, though. 
Public houses serving beer became more popular among the working class, while more middle-class people started to prefer gin served in a gin palace. Okay, it didn't really reduce the popularity of gin very much. It just sort of flipped (laughs) which social classes preferred which drink. The process of making gin also changed somewhat around this time. The column still was developed starting around 1822. Irish distiller Aeneas Coffey refined this design and was awarded for a patent on his improved version in 1830. Unlike pot stills, which required distillers to make their wares in small batches, the column still could run continually, and this made the final product a lot more consistent with generally better quality. Again, there are still plenty of distillers who work in small batches using pot stills today, but generally using more sophisticated techniques and more consistency than in the 18th century. The development of the column still also led to a new style of gin, London Dry, named for being made in London and for not being sweetened. Some of the distillers that were established around this time still exist today. For example, Charles Tanqueray established a distillery in the Bloomsbury neighborhood of London in 1830. Plymouth Gin was evolving as well, sweeter and stronger than London Dry, and available in a more potent navy strength for provisioning to the Royal Navy. There were still a lot of concerns about all the social issues associated with drinking and specifically with drinking gin, though. Charles Dickens started writing about this in his Sketches by Boz in 1836. Unlike earlier writers from back in the 1700s, though, Dickens didn't really frame gin as the cause of poverty. He was fond of gin himself, and instead he described overconsumption and alcohol abuse as effects of poverty and poor living conditions. Quote, Gin drinking is a great vice in England, but wretchedness and dirt are a greater. And until you improve the homes of the poor or persuade a half-famished wretch not to seek relief in the temporary oblivion of his own misery, with the pittance which divided among his family would furnish a morsel of bread for each, gin shops will increase in number and splendor. Just like William Hogarth had depicted Gin Lane in the 18th century, other artists depicted the dangers of alcohol in the 19th century, including George Cruikshank, who is sometimes called the modern Hogarth. Cruikshank's satirical The Gin Shop shows a whole inebriated family in the shop, including children, standing in a trap with death off to one side and a cask of old tom shaped like a coffin. Unlike the 18th century movement that had mostly focused on spirits, the temperance movement that arose in the UK in the 19th century focused on the dangers of all alcohols, including beer. More London dry distillers were established in the middle of the 19th century, including Gilby's in 1857 and Beefeater in 1863. Distillers also started experimenting with different blends of botanicals in addition to the juniper to give their products different flavor profiles. All kinds of gin-based cocktails and mixed drinks evolved during the 19th century. Bitters were popularized in the UK around this time, particularly Peixos and Angostura bitters. Plymouth gin flavored with Angostura bitters became known as pink gin, which was both a popular beverage and a treatment to soothe the stomach and prevent seasickness. 
here in the U.S., you can buy various pink gins in bottles, some of which are this and some of which are not. (laughs) They're pink for some other reason. Uh, Another 19th century innovation was the gimlet, combining gin and lime. And this probably arose from the use of lime juice to prevent scurvy among sailors. Sometimes this name is attributed to Sir Thomas Gimlet, the Surgeon General of the Navy. Although another idea is that it was named for the tool that was used to drill holes in the barrels that these liquids were stored in. That tool is also called a gimlet. The martini was introduced by about 1870, combining gin, vermouth, and garnish. This is also about when the gin and tonic made its debut. Chinchona bark has its own long, long history as the source of medicine to treat recurring fevers. Quinine comes from chinchona bark, and the British Royal Navy relied on it to treat malaria. Quinine was unpleasant to consume, though. In 1870, Schweppes introduced what it called Indian tonic water that was carbonated water infused with quinine. Jean-Jacob Schweppes was not the first person to carbonate water, and Schweppes was not the first company to combine carbonated water and quinine. But Schweppes was the first company to produce carbonated water at an industrial scale and also to market this quinine tonic as a malaria preventative. Mixing tonic water with gin and serving that over ice became a popular way for people in tropical areas to get their doses of quinine. Uh, Tonic water as it is produced today has far less quinine in it, does not really prevent or treat malaria at the current proportions. Please do not count on on these things as medicine for yourself. Uh, This brings us to gin's connections to colonialism. Anywhere the British Empire established a trade or started a colony, it introduced gin or made gin more widely available there than it had been before. Britain and other European powers also traded liquor for enslaved Africans during the transatlantic slave trade. Overwhelmingly, the people already living in these areas already had their own fermenting methods, and unless religious prohibitions on alcohol were in place, some of them were used to make beers, wines, or other alcoholic beverages, in addition to being used to preserve foods. But stronger distilled spirits were often a new innovation. And this led to some of the same societal and health issues that Britain had already witnessed starting in the 18th century combined with the same paternalistic attitudes about how working or poorer people were spending their time. But now, a lot of those attitudes were also threaded through with racism. Colonial officials often had a lot of concerns as local people developed their own distilling practices and lumped everything that they were making under the umbrella of gin, regardless of what was actually being used. So as one example, in Nigeria, British officials described locally made distilled palm wine as gin, even though did not have the ingredients that were commonly used to make gin. So we haven't really talked about the United States at all. Although gin did exist in the U.S., Americans tended to prefer both beer and whiskey to gin. But when Prohibition went into effect in 1920, Illicit gin became a bit more popular. 
Gin was easier to make than many other spirits, since it did not need to be aged and since the juniper could help disguise the flavor of roughly made alcohol. The terms radiator gin and bathtub gin arose during this time, although bathtub gin was probably meant to describe the dirtiness of the bootleg gin rather than it actually being made in a bathtub. Yeah, the idea of it really being made in bathtubs sort of came about in film depictions of prohibition from later on <laughs> rather than how people using it were using it at the time. In the early 20th century, gin's popularity started to wane in a lot of the world. When it came to distilled spirits and their popularity, gin was really overtaken by vodka. But especially in the United States, attitudes toward drinking also started to shift. Alcoholics Anonymous was established in 1935, and by 1950, the organization had grown large enough to hold its first international convention. The popularity of the, quote, three-martini lunch rose and fell over the course of the mid-20th century, with Jimmy Carter criticizing that practice when he ran for president in 1976. Over time, gin and drinks made with gin started to be seen as pretty passe. However, again, if you live in the modern world, you know gin didn't (laughs) go away. Uh, There's really been a resurgence in gin and its popularity more recently. Some people mark gin's resurgence as starting with the introduction of Bombay Sapphire in 1986. Others credit Scottish distillers William Grant & Sons, which introduced Hendrick's Gin in 1999. And over the last couple of decades, there's been a big focus on small-batch craft distillers experimenting with botanical blends to come up with their own flavorings and seasonal gins and the like. In 2020, the global gin market was valued at $14.03 billion, with European consumers making up about half of that market share. Yes. Gin. A lot of variety in gin nowadays. If if we did not mention your favorite gin or your favorite gin drink, uh, don't feel personally left out. I haven't mentioned my favorite ones either. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have listener mail that may or may not involve gin? I do. I do have listener mail. Uh, Even though we started off this episode with mail, we're going to read some more mail. This is from Paige. Paige wrote, Dear Tracy and Holly, I've been an avid listener of your podcast since February, and I've sent you a few emails expressing my thanks. This is the first time I've had something relevant to contribute. I was flipping through my National Geographic magazine the other day and came across an article titled Eating the Problem about chefs turning invasive species into food. To my delight, kudzu was included, I immediately went back and listened to your episode about the vine that ate the South. In recent years, kudzu has been served pickled, fried, dried, fermented, and even as a pesto. This is not the only invasive species getting the restaurant treatment. Chefs have also turned to cooking up lion, fish, feral hogs, and Asian carp. Although eating these creatures will not completely eradicate them, it is a way to reduce their land cover. Additionally, you mentioned Japanese knotweed in your episode as well, which we have several patches of near our house. Every time we pass them, my mom, who is a gardener, remarks on how hard it is to kill and how it is spreading like crazy. Hopefully, knotweed will not end up taking over the north like kudzu did the south, but it is quite difficult to get rid of. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. I look forward to my bus rides each day as they give me a chance to listen to your latest episode I'm including a picture of my pug, Ruthie, as well. She loves the show almost as much as I do. Keep up 
with the wonderful work best page. Ruthie is such a cute pug. Look at this. Oh, Ruthie. Oh, uh, what Ruthie. An adorable dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just liked this email this morning and also making kudzu pesto reminded me of how uh, we get most of our vegetables from our farmer's market and the farm that we get our carrots from sells the carrots with all their tops still attached and we have made carrot top pesto a bunch of times. Yum! Uh, it's been quite yummy. So thanks, Paige, for this note. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you'd like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.